Our reading today is from Matthew chapter 24, sorry, Matthew chapter 10, verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. May God bless his word. You may be seated. We are, as you heard, in Matthew chapter 10. This is our second week in the Gentle and Lowly series. As most of you have heard by now, we're also walking through the book Gentle and Lowly as a church, and I have already been very blessed by that process, and I hope you're able to read and, and jump in in some Bible study or small group. And if you have any questions about how to jump into that, you can always just email the church office, and we'll do whatever we can to, uh, to plug you in. All right, so last week, you may remember that Jesus had some hard words for the disciples. He was telling them that because you desire, because of your call to go out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will be hated, persecuted, and almost all of you killed. And so now in chapter 10, Jesus is following that up uh, by addressing an anticipated and I think very logical emotion that might come from that teaching, fear. Depending on your translation, three times in this passage, Jesus says, fear not, or do not be afraid. And that actually is the most often repeated command in all of the Bible. Don't be afraid. And Jesus here is specifically talking about fear in connection with sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's really clear from verse 27. He's saying, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the mountaintops. So the do not fear, do not fear, do not fear is associated directly with their call to proclaim from the, the housetops the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I was thinking about my, I think it's about 17 years in ministry, and, and I, I've been in circles that would address the fear of sharing the gospel, and they would, it would be something like, well, just do it anyway, just do it anyway. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps, go and just share the gospel and God will be happy with you and maybe it'll be easier the next time. And, and maybe that works for some people. That's not how you motivate Jim Davis. Um, for me, I, I, I longed for something more and in this passage, Jesus gives us so much more than just, just do it. Just be obedient, just be committed. He gives us a deeper understanding of all the promises that we have in Jesus Christ and how that should affect our fear. But before we go there, 
I think it's a good exercise to really kind of lean into the fears that we have in our life when it comes to to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and living out the gospel and wanting people in our lives, in our workplace, in our homes to know the gospel. And so for the disciples, (laughs) what they feared was clear. Jesus said, you're going to be hated, you're going to be imprisoned, and you're going to be killed. But for us, you know, maybe... Maybe that's going to be the case for one of you. Maybe you're going to be called to be a, a missionary in some country or live in some country where that could be your, your plight. For most of us, though, because of when and where we live, I, I think that our, our fears are going to be a little more subtle. They're going to be a little more nuanced. Our fears would be things like, what if I don't know the answer to their question? You know, at, at best, I just look stupid for not, you know, not knowing much about what I believe. At worst, I might actually harm their spiritual growth. Some people might think, you know, who am I to share the gospel when I have this sin in my life? What if that comes out? I could do more harm than good. Um, there are other people who, who look at the people, that, the people they want to share the gospel with are close to them. They're family members, co-workers, employees maybe, and, and there's a fear of adding undue tension to the relationship. It might actually cause a permanent, a permanent sever in a relationship, so that, that fear exists. And then I think for all of us at some level, we fear rejection. I mean, when somebody rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not just this fact over here that they're rejecting, like, uh, you know, are the Atlanta Braves good or something. Like, they're, they're rejecting us at some level. We're being rejected because this isn't just an opinion we hold. This is the hope upon which we are staking our lives. So I, I want, before we dive into this teaching, just to kind of go there for a minute and think, what are your fears? When you think about living a life that both by, by the life you live and the words you speak, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to everybody in your midst, what kinds of fears come on you? And I want you to keep those in your mind as we go and hear Jesus speak to us because he says a lot more than just pull up your bootstraps. He says a lot more than just do it. He gives us a, a hope that's going to override these fears. And he tells us four things. First thing he says is, this is all expected. This is verses 24 and 25. Nothing's gone wrong. There's no deficiency in you. There's no deficiency in the gospel. There's no deficiency in God that brings about this rejection. Jesus experienced all this rejection. So it's expected that that you would too. Let me read verses 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of that house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So Beelzebul was the name for the prince of demons, Satan, and they were calling Jesus Satan. And so I I feel like I've experienced some rejection in my ministry, but nobody thus far has called me Satan. And so in every way, when we watch the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, his rejection is so far more than anything that we're ever really going to experience. I mean, this Jesus is perfect in every way. All his motives are perfect. All his methods are perfect. He is rejected in this way. Why would we think we would get something more than the perfect son of man? And so if your fear is that... I'm worried about being rejected. Jesus is saying, you will be. <laughs> it's, it's okay, you will be. I was, you will be. But then he doesn't just stop there and say, tough, I had to do it, you have to do it too. 
he develops the relationship between us and Jesus that merits us being treated the same way. He starts by saying that we are the disciple and he is the teacher. And then he says, you're the servants, he is our master. And then he takes it a really important step further and says that we are a part of his household. So we've been adopted into the household of God and now what's true of the master is true of us. And so the the theological term for that is union with Christ. We have a union with Christ and what's true of Jesus is now true of us. And so yes, Jesus was persecuted, so shall we be. He uh, He was rejected, so shall we be. But he was also sinless and so shall we be. He resurrected, and so shall we be. He is with, he's in the presence of the Father for eternity, and so shall we be. So we have this union with Christ, and it really is, if we think about being in his household, we have the privilege of being treated like Christ because of our relationship, our union with him, both in his shame and in his glory. And this is why Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.21, for to you this for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps the old theologian JC Ryle said if you leave the world alone it will probably leave you alone but if you attempt to do to to do the world spiritual good it will hate you just like it hated your lord all of this is expected so that's the first thing that Jesus says about our fear it's expected The second thing he tells us in the passage is the truth will out. Now, as an American, I don't get to say that phrase a lot. It's a British phrase that I love. The truth will out. It it means all the secrets will be revealed. The truth will be known at the end of the day. And that's obviously coming from verse 26. Jesus says, so have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Now on the surface, I remember the first time I read this, I was thinking, that's not all that calming. <laughs> if Jesus is saying all the secrets about Jim Davis's thoughts and everything ever done is going to be revealed, my anxiety is not going down, it's going up. <laughs> and I, it's, it, this week, many of you probably read the social media website Parlor shut down. And before it was shut down, apparently it got hacked in a way that all the information is, is being accumulated in a searchable fashion. Every private message that was ever sent on Parler, social security numbers, everything, where your GPS location was, like it's all out there. And so I would, I'm not on Parler, but I, if I were, I'd, be, I'd imagine, man, that, that's, that's a lot of information about to go out there. That's not what is being communicated here. That's not what Jesus is wanting to say that, because that doesn't calm anybody. What Jesus is saying is that you will be vindicated. At the end of the day, those who persecute you, they will, they will be exposed for who they are, but you will be vindicated because the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be known to everyone, including those who persecute us, that Jesus is the King of Kings, he is the Lord of Lords. And in that moment, when that vindication, that exoneration happens, all the persecution that we have endured will be worth it a thousand times over. So I was thinking... There obviously is no perfect worldly equivalent to the vindication of Jesus Christ at the end of days. But to give us a little glimpse, imagine that you had devoted your life to the abolition of slavery. And, and if, you know, if that were me, I grew up in the South, that would have meant a lot of people misunderstanding me. That would have meant people hating me probably. And I think there were people, if you devote your life to the abolition of slavery in the United States back in the day, there would be people who want you dead. 
But imagine enduring all that persecution and then comes the day when Congress legislates that all slavery is abolished in the Western world. I mean, all the work and the persecution you would have felt would have been worth it a thousandfold in that minute when you are vindicated, when you're exonerated, when what you believe is true has come to pass. Multiply that by 10,000, 100,000, a million, I don't know. And then we start to get the palest glimpse of what Jesus is promising in the vindication and exoneration of his people. In that moment, any persecution that we will have ever had to endure will be worth it 10,000-fold. So we have to be content to be misunderstood in this world. We have to be content to be hated in this world if that's what... If that's what comes on you because of your faith in Jesus Christ and your desire to make him known and proclaimed. And we don't just see this here, we see it all throughout scripture. Psalm 37, 6. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. That's vindication. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart? And because he says all this, this brings us back to verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Now, houses, Palestinian houses in, that, in those days, they would have been shorter than we're used to, and they would have had flat roofs, so they were ideal to stand up on and proclaim to a city block or a neighborhood or whatever, whatever it is you want to proclaim. And Jesus obviously isn't saying that all the things that Jesus said, he said in the dark in a whisper tone. He's saying by correlation, what you are called to do, the disciples, to go out throughout the whole empire, preaching from housetops. It's going to seem, what I'm doing is going to seem like whispering compared to what you're called to do. And you have, you have to be able to understand that one day you will be vindicated to be able to endure the persecution that you are going to endure. So fear not. That's the second one. The third one. Jesus says, know your real enemy. Know your enemy. This is verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This is another one that's a little confusing upon first reading because Jesus seems to be saying, they can only take your body. It's like, well, that feels like an awful lot to me. And it's also confusing because it sounds like A, Jesus saying, fear not, fear, fear not again. And it also feels like God saying, hey, you give me your body or I'll destroy your body and your soul. And I don't think that's on the surface what Jesus is really wanting to communicate. I think it's a little simpler. Jesus is saying it's because these disciples, they had other enemies, that, that people they would have called enemies, the Roman officials, the Jewish authorities who wanted to oppose what they were trying to do as to spread the message of Jesus Christ. I mean, and certainly those, those Roman officials and those Jewish authorities, they caused lots of problems, lots of troubles for the disciples. But those people, they were enemies that they hoped would become brothers and sisters in Christ one day. What Jesus is saying is there is an enemy who will always be your enemy, and that enemy wants both your body and your soul to be destroyed, and that enemy is Satan, and he will destroy body and soul in hell. Hell's not a fun topic to talk about. I, I'm a 
I think I'm a people pleaser at heart. So, I, I mean, if I'm just picking up, picking texts. I probably wouldn't talk about hell unless I really sensed that everybody wanted me to and it would please you to teach on hell. But Jesus talks about hell and so we need to talk about hell. And Jesus makes it clear that every human being who has ever lived one day will resurrect. Everyone will resurrect. Those, in Je- those who are in Jesus Christ will resurrect to a glorified body. No matter what they took from you, this new body is going to be a lot better. And we will resurrect to an eternal life in the new kingdom with new heavens and new earth with our God. And those without Jesus Christ will resurrect to some type of eternal torment where both body and soul are destroyed. And I don't think you can read into this that that this is a finite period of time until body and soul is destroyed and then it's just done. I think this is an eternal an eternal destruction of both body and soul that never ends. You know, we, we can think of, of hell as, as Satan's kingdom. Hell is Satan's prison and all those without Jesus Christ, that's where we end up. And I don't, I don't want to think about this. I don't like, you know, if I'm going to snooze off at night, think of what an eternal torment in hell would be like. I don't want to think about that. Nor, nor do I think I could even possibly really grasp the, the gravity of what that will be like. But Jesus is saying you need to. You need to at least take some time to try because you need to know that is your real enemy. And that is going to put your other perceived enemies into place and it is going to curb these these fears is going to better align these fears that you're getting from these people not properly fearing the true enemy so hey he's saying don't worry about earthly enemies okay they might hurt you they may even kill you but you're going to be okay they can't affect your soul they can't prevent you from receiving the body that you're going to receive all the persecution that you experience in your in the hardest of lives by comparison on that day will seem like a bad night in a cheap motel room compared to the glory that we will get on that day. Martin Luther, in the 16th century, he was standing before the the Roman Catholic leaders and authorities for his view of scripture, trying to to faithfully follow salvation by grace alone. And he's standing in front of them knowing this, this could very well mean the end of his life and understanding who his real enemy was caused him to look at his authorities and and say, here I stand, I can do no other, help me God. I think that's what it's like to, to, that's what happens in a scary situation when you know who your real enemy is. And I, I was thinking about this this week, and thinking about how the more you love something, that actually makes your enemies more clear. So if you really love Gator sports, then FSU becomes more of an enemy, and, and vice versa. If, uh, if you really love the United States, then the more you love the United States, more China is going to probably seem like an enemy. I remember as a kid, I, I used to like the Chicago Bulls, and then we got Shaq and Penny, and I loved the Orlando Magic, and then all of a sudden the Bulls are looking like an enemy. And if we ultimately love ourselves, if that is the thing that we love the most, then Satan's never going to seem like a real enemy, because what he's saying is don't listen to God and all the things that he wants you to do. Go do what you want to do. Follow your fallen desires. Indulge your greed and your lust. So if we love ourselves more than anything else, Satan is not going to seem like an enemy. He could seem like a friend. But when we love Jesus Christ and we know him, and we love him, and we trust him, the more we begin to understand him and love him, then Satan is clearly our enemy. 
And knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing and loving Jesus. Knowing some doctrines about Jesus is not the same thing as being in an ever-deepening relationship with him that is going to, to give perspective to everything, including who our real enemy is. In the book, Gentle and Lowly, that we're talking about a lot, uh, Dane Ortland gives a really great example, I think, of the difference between knowing about and knowing. He says, a wife may tell, you how, tell, may tell you much about her husband, his height, his eye color, his eating habits, his education, his job, his handiness around the house, his best friends, his hobbies, his Myers-Briggs personality profile, his favorite sports team. But what can she say to communicate his knowing gaze across the table over a dinner at their favorite restaurant? The look that reflects years of ever-deepening friendship thousands of conversations and arguments through which they safely come, a time-ripened settling into the assurance of embrace, come what may. The glance that speaks in a moment, his loving protection more clearly than a thousand words. In short, what can she say to communicate to to another, to someone else, her husband's heart for her? It's one thing to describe what your husband does and looks like and says it's something whole, wholly different and deeper and more real to describe his heart for you. And in the same way, it's one thing to describe what Jesus has said and doctrines about Jesus and to really experience his heart for you in a relationship with him. So how does that land with you? If we hit pause right here, Can you describe God's heart for you? Not just some doctrines about him. What is his heart? What are his intentions for you? Now I would imagine some of you, there might be some people who just can't describe that because you don't experience it. And there's others of you that so deeply experience it, you're thinking, how would I ever begin? But the question is, 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 are we experiencing God's heart for us? And hopefully maybe in a way that we could never even begin to try and describe it. So being Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, what an example of somebody that we have that knew all they can take is my body. And they did. They took his body. But I believe based on his profession of faith in Jesus Christ, he'll get another body one day that'll be a lot better than the one he remembered. May we be marked by the same kind of seriousness, single-mindedness, focus, and vigor for the things of God in this world that's going to hopefully bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to every facet of this world and every facet of our society. Because our chief enemy, the chief enemy, the real enemy, he is the one who wants division in the church. He is the one who wants hatred and anger across racial lines. He is the one who wants millions of babies slaughtered every year. And he is the one who wants our souls and our bodies destroyed forever in hell. And he is our enemy because as followers of Christ, we are now called to champion human flourishing, to honor God's image bearers from conception to death and to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere we can by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is our enemy and we have to understand our chief enemy. And I guess he stands over there because that's, that's where I keep pointing. <laughs> Do you see your true enemy? 
And does that shape the way you look at and view people who are giving you a tough time because of your faith? Fourth and finally, Jesus says, you shall not fear because you are of great value to God. These are verses 29 and through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So the illustration is clear. These the sparrows, two of them cost one penny. Yet in terms of human value, we're of much more value as, as human beings than sparrows. Yet not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's will. What then does that say about his will for us? And he, Jesus goes so far as to make the point that, that God is now our father. So he's, he's master over the sparrows, but he's our father. And if, if we didn't have sin in this world, if there, were, if there were no part of our fallen nature, all we would need to hear is that word father, and we would totally get it. But because we live in a fallen world, that, that term father, it just doesn't hit us the way that it's intended to. Because we tend to take our skewed understanding about how this world works and apply it to God the Father. And I'm again drawing from this week's reading in Gentle and Lowly, but as a rule... Fallen humanity dictates that the wealthier someone gets, the more they're going to look down on the poor. And the more beautiful someone is, the more ugliness is going to, is going to be a put off to them. And in the same way, the more we really think about how high and exalted and holy God is, we're going to think that, well, sure, he may tolerate us kind of with his nose up, but really he could never come down and love us in our uncleanliness and our rebellion and our sinful nature. That just doesn't, it doesn't make sense because we're applying a skewed view of humanity and fathership to our heavenly father. But no, no human father, no good human father would really do that. And certainly our heavenly father is going to look at us with nothing but love, no matter what we've done, who we are, because we are of great value to him. And as you endeavor to make Jesus Christ known in this world, uh, your enemies, and especially your, your main enemy, is going to make you feel like you don't matter. I mean, you could end up in a place where you, you, things are so difficult, you are so persecuted because of your efforts to glorify Jesus Christ that you can begin to wonder, God, do you even care about me? And it's in exactly these times that we are to be comforted by the fact that he cares greatly, that none of this is outside of his control. And again, Jesus understands it. Do you remember the night that Jesus was betrayed? In that dark moment, what is it that Jesus took comfort in? He looks at his captors and he says, you could not have done this if it had not been appointed by the hand of the Father in heaven. His comfort in that moment is that God's still in control of everything. Jesus knows he has great value and whatever happens, even if he loses his body, he will not lose his soul. He will resurrect and so shall we. And there's nothing about our morality, our spirituality, our church attendance that's going to make us more or less valuable to God. That that's not a part of this text. I have a pastor friend who told me this story that I think illustrates it really well. He had a, 
a young woman in his church, she was a new convert, she had a baby girl who, had, who was born very prematurely, and so they had to do an operation on her lungs, it, the operation went terribly, and this, this little baby was permanently and terribly brain damaged. And so this pastor went, he said it took all that he could do to go to this hospital, and he, he went to the hospital, into the NICU, where, where the young mom is holding this baby, and he looked at her and he said, I came to see you but I don't have anything to say, which is the best thing you could ever say in that moment. And she replied, that's okay. And she said, we're doing fine. And the pastor said, what do you mean you're doing fine? He said, she said, you know, I see this girl and I know what's wrong with her, but in my mind's eye, I see this scene of this large stadium filled with people and God the Father walks out on the stage holding this baby and he cries out, who wants this baby? She's weak, she's small, she's dumb. She will never wipe or feed herself. Speak your name, thank you. Live outside your home. You will have to do everything for her and she will cost you everything that you have. And in my mind's eye, I see me jumping up and raising my hand and saying, I do, I want this baby, give her to me. And the pastor said, why, why do you think that? What makes you think that? And she said, because I now know that the father walked out on that same stage a second time and he was holding me. And he said to the crowd, who wants this woman? She's rude, she's selfish, she's ungrateful, she gossips, she won't say thank you, she won't, she won't call out to you and she will cost you everything you have. Who wants this woman? And she said, I can see the Lord Jesus jumping up from where he's sitting and saying, I do, I want her, give her to me. Because Jesus' love for us, it isn't based on anything that we do, anything that we can offer him. He loves us because he loves us because he loves us. And because of that, nothing, no one, no enemy, no sin, no persecution can ever separate us from that love. That's what curbs and helps us and guides us in all the fears that we're going to experience. So what's the result of all of this? If we know these things, our fears will not control us and we will confess Christ openly and he finishes by making sure we know that the stakes are high. Verses 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. I've had to walk my kids through scary things before jumping off the diving board pops into my mind. Uh, Yesterday, it was walking into a dark room by themselves. And I'll usually say things. I realized this yesterday as I was doing it. I'll say things like, it's okay, be brave. You can do this. You're all right. I promise you, you're going to be safe. And I don't think my advice was wrong, but that's not biblical courage. Biblical courage is something very different. It's not saying that we can do this. I've got this. It's saying God's got this. God's got this, it may cost us a lot, it may cost us our body, but at the end of the day, God's got this. This is going to all transpire in a way that is for our good and for his glory, even if it means losing our life. So what fears are driving you? You have to understand and engage them. If if these words are really gonna mean much to you, what fears are driving you when you think about living a life where you are through your actions and your words communicating the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you need some help and you wanna kind of find those fears a little bit better, where are the areas in your life where you really lash out, where you get angry, where the fuse is shorter than it needs to be, where the the fire is larger than the wood? 
That's going to give you a clue as to where you're going to find some of those fears. Biblical courage is not fighting and yelling. Biblical courage is a seemingly endless supply of kindness and love and grace and hope and a quiet confidence that you know in the end things are going to work out well. And this kind of courage is not just needed for us, it's needed for other people. I mean, we live in a world where I think people are more fearful than I've experienced them in my lifetime. And so through this biblical courage, this quiet confidence, this lasting hope, people can see this, not understand it, and want it. And maybe it's through our courage in in scary situations where, where we're trying to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're trying to process how the gospel affects us in these different areas. It's that kind of courage that's going to give hope to other people. So what is your, what is your next step in understanding your fears, in, in living a life that shares the promise and the grandeur and the hope of Jesus Christ, again, in, in every way, through your actions, through your words, and through every unique, quirky scenario that you can experience in your home, in your work, in your neighborhood, wherever. What is your next step in growing in your ability to do that? No Christian has ever crossed the threshold from this life to the next and turned around and wanted to go back. That has never and will never happen. And I get the feeling in this that that's what Jesus is wanting us to see. He wants us to see the glory that awaits us and the vindication that awaits us and how valued we really are that we'll never really fully know until we're there. And he wants that to just cover us in a way that just kind of puts all these other fears in their place. The more that sinks in, I think the more that we're going to have the kind of courage that Jesus is is pushing us to in this passage. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that we, you don't just come in and say, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You don't say, follow me and obey me because, I've, because you owe me everything, even though we do. You come in and you give us this treasure trove of gifts, both in this life and especially in the next. And you, you curb our hearts, you, you mold our hearts uh, in a way that, that breeds courage, that helps us to not fear. And so every one of us in this room, Lord, we fear. Every one of us is deficient in our desire and execution to share your gospel with the world. And I just pray that you would lavish us with your grace in a way that would uh, help us to acknowledge and confess our fears and move through them. And I pray that you would bless us by allowing us to see fruit as we do, move forward in desiring to communicate your grandeur and your grace through your gospel of Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you. We pray this in the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of your only son, Jesus Christ. Amen.